If you attend church somewhat regularly, you'll probably listen to between 30 and 40 sermons this year. Over a period of five years, that amounts to 150 to 190 sermons. If you've attended church somewhat regularly for 10 years, you've heard somewhere between 300 and 400 sermons. If you've attended regularly for 20 years, well, whoops, <laughs> this is last week's sermon. <laughs> I'm preaching last week's sermon. Some of you are saying, I, I kind of thought that sounded familiar. Kind of reminds me of a young pastor who had just come to his first church, and everyone kind of seemed to like him. They were especially impressed with his very first sermon on his very first Sunday there. He explained the Bible with insights that were more typical of a seasoned pastor than a novice. His examples were interesting. His applications were relevant. It was an excellent sermon. Everyone eagerly looked forward to the next Sunday. The next Sunday, a most unusual thing happened. The new pastor preached the same sermon over again. It wasn't exactly word for word the same, but it was very close. It was based on the same passage from the Bible, the same illustrations, and the same applications. As people walked out, they thought it was kind of odd that he would preach the same sermon, but they didn't want to be too critical. A few mentioned it to each other, but none of them mentioned it to the new pastor. Some thought, well, maybe he had a busy week and didn't have time to prepare a new sermon. Some were actually quite gracious and figured, hey, a repeated sermon wasn't so bad. Sunday number three was a rerun of sermon number one and sermon number two. Everything was pretty much the same. Now people began to wonder, and a few of them started to complain. The elders also were concerned, and they took the young pastor aside. They, they asked him if he anticipated having any different sermons. He answered, yes. Then why do you keep preaching the same sermon each week, they asked him. And with youthful, warm naivety, the young pastor said, well, I figured that when you got around to doing what I said in the first sermon, then I'll go ahead and preach the second sermon. I think the writer of the book of James might concur with this young pastor. I mean, when someone leaves a Sunday school class or a Bible study or hearing, a, hearing it preach and they say, that was a good study, what exactly do they mean? I mean, shouldn't we be noticeably different because of our time in God's Word? Shouldn't Bible study lead to transformation? Shouldn't we be changed rather than charmed by the Bible being taught? James would answer with a resounding yes. Our time in the book of James is all about faith in action, a belief that behaves. And James has walked us through on, on how to respond to trials. And, and then secondly, how to respond to temptations. And last week, on how to respond to truth. And today is a continuation of that thought as, as to how to respond to truth. And while I was tempted, very tempted, to preach the same sermon as last week, risking that you might not even have noticed... I want to draw your attention to the passage that Nick read for us in James chapter 1. 
We left off last time, James chapter 1, verse 21. So follow along as I read verse 22. Just this one verse, verse 22. This is really what it's all about this morning, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, James has a fondness for the word deceived. Time and time again, he says, don't deceive yourselves or or, don't be deceived. He says it twice in this section we're looking at this morning in verses 22 through 27. To deceive ourselves could mean a deliberate false reasoning. In mathematics, we might say that it's a miscalculation. So in this section this morning, the message is clear. If we don't apply God's word, there is a serious spiritual miscalculation going on. In other words, who are we kidding when we say, this is the very word of God, it is without error, God breathe, and the book I live by is a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet not do what it says. James says, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. So the main thought of verses 22 through 27 is this. We kid ourselves when there's a response to God's word other than unqualified obedience. Let me say that again. We kid ourselves when there's a response to God's word other than unqualified obedience. And there's four headings under that. There's going to be doers of the word, first of all. And then secondly, uh, deliberate with our words. Thirdly, defenders of the weak. Then fourthly, dedicated to wholesomeness. Doers of the word, deliberate with our words, defenders of the weak, and dedicated to wholesomeness. Now, most of my time will be spent on the very first point. I I, I tell you that in advance because when I get through with my first point, you may look at your watch and think, holy smokes, he has three more points to go. (laughs) We're having lunch here today. I don't want you checking out. So the first point is where I'm going to spend most of my time this morning. The first point is the principle. It is what it's all about this morning. And then James is going to give three examples as to how that principle is lived out. So first of all, doers of the word. Doers of the word. A man walking into church late asked one of the ushers, Is the sermon done yet? The usher replied, The sermon has been preached but it has yet to be done. At what point is the sermon preached done? We saw last week the importance of listening when it comes to the word of God. And there can be some satisfaction from listening. But James takes that one more step. I mean, what happens when the Bible is closed? For he says at the beginning of verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says. And then in verse 25, he says, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this. And and those two statements are the two slices of bread, if you will, around the meat of the illustration of the mirror. In verses 23 and 24. In the middle of 23, it says, Is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Paul, uh, James here is addressing the mirror ministry of God's words. 
And he gives us man number one, or person number one. And, and person number one begins well enough. He, 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 he looks into the mirror of God's word. And then using the mirror analogy, James says that person number one looks at his face in the mirror. Literally, that says, sees the face he was born with. I like that. Sees the face he was born with. Mirror, mirror, or a magic mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And the mirror answered, Thou, O queen, are the fairest of all. And the queen was contented because she knew the mirror could speak nothing but the truth. Oh, the queen liked it when the mirror told her that she was the fairest. But later on, when that same mirror told her that she was not the fairest of them all, but that Snow White was, she got angry and jealous and she went into a rage. Now imagine, when you get up tomorrow morning, you make your way to the bathroom and you look into the mirror. For some of you, that might be pretty scary looking. (laughs) Her eyes with dark circles under them, our hair sticking out all in strange places. A little scruffy, needing a shave, a new pimple, a, a pale face. It is there that you see the face you were born with. Mirrors don't lie. They don't gloss over our defects and tell us we're better looking than we are. This is the very reason it is said that Mae West had all her mirrors removed as she aged because she couldn't face the inevitable wrinkles and lines on her face. See, facing our mirrors first thing in the morning, well, for most of us, Not that pleasant of an experience. So person number one looks at his face in the mirror. For man number one, uh, starts off well enough, but it ends tragically. Then we come to man or person number two. It says in verse 25, he or she also looks into the mirror. He looks intently, which is the idea of close examination. It's to be bent over like a child bending over to get a closer look at some bug on a leaf. For person number two in this illustration, his looking ends with what? Blessing. Now what's the difference between person number one and person number two? I suggest to you that the contrast being made here is not in the looking. It's not in the looking. It isn't as if one gave a casual glance and the second man studied himself in the mirror. Both listened, both looked. The contrast is between what man number one and man number two do with what they saw. Some, I tell you this because some have made a real big deal about how person number one looks in the mirror and it's different than how person number two looks in the mirror. No, the problem wasn't in the looking. That misses the point. The problem is in the forgetting. And what James, when James speaks of forgetting what he looks like here, He's not referring to a lack of memory or a lack of cognitive ability. He's referring to an intentional forgetting. It's putting it out of your mind for now. We don't want to remember what we saw. We don't want to do anything to change what we saw. Imagine again that scene first thing in the morning. Sorry to have you keep revisiting this. 
Imagine that after looking yourself in the mirror, you decided that you're going to deal with what you saw after breakfast. So you sit down to eat some breakfast, you get on the computer, and you kind of lose track of time. Realizing you're late for work, you quickly get dressed and you run out the door, forgetting what you saw in the mirror. You didn't do anything about it. You saw, but that's as far as it went. You put it off. And if that is what you did every single morning, you got up, you looked in the mirror, and you went, eh, not so good, and you left everything as it is, then why have mirrors at all? I mean, why see every wart, messy hair, and all the other things you see? Why look at it at all if you don't do something about it? How often do we hear a sermon, we read God's Word, and we think, I really need to do something about this. And then life gets busy, and you've got people to see, and and places to go, and you just forget. How often does God's Word show you yourself, for it doesn't lie. It shows you as you're reading it, or some sermon that you're listening to, it shows you that you need to go and make something right with somebody else. Or it shows you that that you wounded your child with with careless speech, or, or that you have sewer mouth. Or it shows you that you've lied. Or or it shows you that you're way over your head in this relationship physically. Or perhaps it shows you that that you're binging on food, that that you're going to that for comfort, and and you're about to be dragged away and enticed, and, and yet you immediately forget what you saw. How often has God's Word nudged you to encourage a friend Speak up to witness. Give more sacrificially or to step out in faith and step out in trust rather than worry and you immediately forget. You put it off. The forgetfulness is the major point of the analogy. Any amount of careful looking into a mirror is wasted if we don't do something about what we just saw. Mirror, mirror, speak truth. Show me what I need to see. As unpleasant as it may be to confront our own faces first thing in the morning, we know that if we don't look at ourselves and attempt at making some changes, the rest of the world is going to see our morning face. It's better to face the truth than ignore reality. I ask, are you approaching the mirror of God's word that way. You want it to show you the truth. If you do, if you are, I can guarantee you that you may not always like what you see. You may not like it. Might that be the very reason we choose not to look at it at all? I read about a school teacher who lost her life savings in a business scheme that had been elaborately explained by some swindler. And when her investment disappeared and her dream was shattered, she finally went to the Better Business Bureau. Well, why on earth didn't you come to us first, the official asked the teacher. I mean, didn't you know about the Better Business Bureau? Oh, yes, the teacher replied. I've always known about you. I, I know about the Better Business Bureau, but I didn't come to you because I was afraid you would tell me not to do it. Isn't that the rub? If I look here, it just might tell me not to do what it is I want to do, so I'm not even going to look at the mirror. 
See, the problem isn't in knowing where to find the answers most of the time. We likely know what it says about what it is that's confronting us. For most, most of the time, the problem isn't we need more information, but we need to act on what we already know. We kid ourselves when there's a response to God's word other than unqualified obedience. And brothers and sisters in Christ, there is here a sobering warning. The more we listen to God's word without being changed by it, the less likely we will be changed by it. Let me say that again. The more we listen to God's word without being changed by it, the less likely we will be changed by it. That's why I preach for change in my own life and in your life. That's why I get a little wound up as I preach, just a little. Because I have no greater passion than to give you what the word says so that you and I might be changed by this. Because, loved one, this is the very word that sets us free. And James speaks to the perfect law that gives freedom in verse 25. The perfect law that gives freedom. What is this perfect law that gives freedom? That sounds like a paradox to me, doesn't it, to you? We don't think of law and freedom as going hand in hand. We think of law as bondage and not being under law as freedom. He says the perfect law that gives freedom. Well, the law is perfect because it's God's provision, and he only gives us perfect gifts. What God gives us is what perfectly fits what we need. This law that is perfect is perfectly suited for our needs is that which can direct us to living according to God's will. See, the Jewish Christians, when they read this, what he just said here about the perfect law that gives freedom, I'm sure their mind would have gone to the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone, given to them after they had been redeemed, after they had been delivered from bondage in Egypt, after, that's key. Because this law was given to them to frame their lives and provide for them, now that they're delivered, to provide for them a way of life. And that is why the psalmist could say, I delight in God's law. I love God's law. But more than that, I have to believe that these Jewish believers would have also thought of Jeremiah 31. You can look at it this week. But in Jeremiah 31, it is there that that the prophet speaks of a day when the law would be written on their hearts. How is that so? Well, you see, the, the one, the Christ who fulfilled the law through obedience to it and by becoming our atoning sacrifice for sin has then placed that law on believers' hearts. One of our favorite lines as Christians is, we're not under law, we're under grace. What does that mean? There's so much confusion around this that my brief thoughts here I hardly will clear it all up. But suffice it to say, please watch out for this false dichotomy between the Old Testament being all about law and the New Testament being all about grace. In terms of a means of acceptance before God, it was always about grace. Always. 
Watch out for this notion, for this attitude, believer, that says, I am set free from anyone telling me what to do. And if you tell me what to do, you're a legalist. Bogus. Show me that. Not true. Not true. Could be, but not always. Be careful, be careful, loved one, that in our freedom we do not sin, as it says in Galatians 5. You see, freedom is not doing whatever we feel like doing. Freedom is the power to do what we ought to do. Matter of fact, to do whatever we feel like doing, that freedom, how's that working out for most of America? It's the opposite of freedom. It leads to slavery, to sin and to bondage and to death-like existence, as we saw earlier in James. You see, the law that gives freedom is to tell the truth, even when we don't want to. The law that gives freedom is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The law that gives freedom is to love our neighbors. The law that gives freedom is to love one another and to serve one another in love. The law that gives freedom is is to not look lustfully at a woman. The law that gives freedom is to not covet others' possessions, to not hate, and and to live with anger. It is to see the truth about ourselves and then to act on what we see. Loved ones, that is freedom. That is freedom. And where do we find this freedom from loneliness and guilt and, and lust and aimlessness and emptiness and any bitterness within by being obedient? Freedom in Christ is tied directly to our obedience. Disobedient people think they're free, but really they're in bondage. You cannot experience the liberating power of God's word by disobedience. Be doers of the word. Doers of the words. Are you a doer of the words? You know, we have, we have every translation of the Bible imaginable. We do. The NIV, the NEV, the KGV, the NKGV, the NASV, the Preacher's Bible, the Spirit-Filled Bible, the New King James American Patriots Bible, the NLT Life Recovery Bible, the Word on the Street Bible. I just saw that one recently. I'm making that up. The left-handed people with Maine accent who are rednecks Bible. Okay, I made that one up. The point is, we got all kinds of translations out there. I want to give you one more translation to add to the mix. It is called the doer's translation, the doer's version. It is translating the Bible into life. That's the one we all ought to sign on for. Get your copy of that one. It's right here. And James. What does it look like? Well, James provides us three examples of being doers of the word, uh, deliberate use of our words, defenders of the weak, dedicated to wholesomeness. I told you the first one was going to be my, my longest point, so hang in there. Because all three of these topics, these three that he gives examples of how to translate it into life, deliberate use of our words, Defenders of the weak and dedicated to wholesomeness are all three topics that James is going to pick up later in the book. And so I'm just going to mention them for now. But placed in this context, we are kidding ourselves if we say we are followers of Jesus Christ and living according to the Bible if these three areas are not being translated into life. That's what he says in verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious... 
yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. He kids himself. He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Can you soften that just a little bit, maybe, James? Can you imagine saying that to another believer? Can you imagine calling someone out whose loose lips are sinking ships and saying, hey, you know what? Your religion is worthless. Ooh. But isn't that what the watching world has concluded at times as they see us beating up one another, complaining about what is wrong with the church we attend, gossiping about this co-worker and that client, they in essence say to us, your Christianity is worthless. Don't tell me about your Christ when you have loosely shared about his followers. Instead, we need about deliberate use of our words. We're going to come back to that. I'm not going to tell you when, what week because it might be just me here. But it's coming about James talking about our tongue. Secondly, doing God's word is translated into life by being defenders of the weak. In verse 27, he talks about that. He mentions two groups of people to drive home his point about religion that is acceptable to God. He speaks of orphans and widows, which would be the two particular groups in James's day who would feel the distress. They would feel the pressure associated making it day after day. The orphans and widows were the neediest people in the early church. Much is said in Scripture about defending those who can't defend themselves. Orphans and widows. And I believe they represent anyone who's in need. We're called to care for the unfortunate. Get this, an acceptable religion selflessly reaches out to those who are unable to reciprocate in any way. Defenders of the weak. Thirdly, dedicated to wholesomeness. Dedicated to wholesomeness. A doer of God's word, it says here, keeps himself, which indicates regular, continuous action, keeps himself from being polluted by the world. The world is coming at us all the time. All its philosophies and ideas and, and ways of doing things that are contrary to God's word. And, and let's get this, a passive approach to the world coming at us won't cut it. If we are not actively, habitually obeying the Lord, we are going to slip away into compromise. We will find ourselves doing things we once said we would never do. Doers of God's word are dedicated to wholesomeness. Mirror, mirror, what do you see? Don't think about your spouse. Don't think about your children here. Don't, don't think about the other people in the congregation who need to hear this this morning. Just look into the mirror of God's word and let it examine and let it, let it show you what it is God wants you to see about you. What God wants me to see about me. Mirror, mirror, what do you see? What do you see? Well, run your faith through the test of your actions. Are you person number one or are you person number two? Are you the person who hears a sermon or a really deep Bible class that exposes some need for repentance and then, and then begin the work of change? If so, great, you're person number two. Mirror, mirror, what do you see? Well, take a look at what you see and how you look at other people, especially the helpless. 
Are you touched by their lack? Are you not just touched but striving to bring about a better life for those children or elderly that that need some benefits? We've looked into the mirror of God's Word this morning. And some of you will continue to look into the mirror of God's Word by attending Sunday school class this morning or a Bible study later on in the week or in your own Bible time, your own time that you're going to have in God's Word this week. But the question is, will that be good? Well, the Bible study is good not just because we learned something. A Bible study is good not just because it was profound and deep. A Bible study is good not because of what the preacher or the teacher was able to do with the text. A Bible study is good because it convicts us and it changes us. If it doesn't, can it be called good? Try that on. What does this passage say? End of verse 25. What does it say? He will be blessed in what he knows. Follow along. He will be blessed in what he learned. Oh, no, it's he will be blessed in what he memorizes. As good as that is, he will be blessed. What does it say, loved ones, in what he does? In what he does. Is there any blessing in just hearing the word? Is there any blessing in just knowing the word? Why do you study the Bible? Why do you listen to your favorite speaker online? To gain knowledge or because you want to be changed? How critical is this to your life, to your marriage, to your family, to how you approach work this week? How critical is this? How critical is this as part of this church family to be a doer of God's word? How critical is that? For every one of us to be a doer of God's word. I read of another pastor who years ago was called to a spiritually dead church in a small Oklahoma town. The pastor spent the first week calling on many members as possible, inviting them to the first Sunday service, but the effort failed. In spite of many calls, not a single member showed up for worship. So the pastor placed a notice in the local paper stating that since the church was dead, the pastor was going to give it a decent Christian burial. (laughs) And pretty bold. He posted it, sent out notices. I think he even put it in the obituary. The funeral for the church would be held at 2 p.m. on the following Sunday. That got people out. Morbidly curious, the whole membership turned out for the funeral. In front of the pulpit, there was, a, there was a large casket smothered in flowers. And after the eulogy was given, the pastor invited the congregation to come forward and pay their respects to the dead church. And so the long line of mourners filed by, and each one peered curiously into the open casket and then quickly turned away with a guilty, sheepish look. You see, inside the casket, tilted at just the right angle, was a large mirror. (laughs) Get it? Each one saw his own reflection in the mirror about this dead church as perhaps never before. Each one saw why the church was dead. They had to look at themselves. 
Now, my point, my point isn't to imply this is a dead church. On the contrary, I could point to many indicators of life. That's not my point. My point is that each one of us helps keep it alive. My point is that each one of us is responsible for the health of our church. How do we do this? What is required for God to continue to bless us? How do we know that we are people blessed by him? But the one who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Mirror, mirror of God's word, who is truly best blessed by the Lord? Doers. Doers of the words. Don't be a forgetful hearer, but a doer of work. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you have held up the mirror to our lives this morning. How many times, if I had good intentions in coming out of a time in your word or a time in hearing the, the message preached and, and said, yeah, I need, I need to do that and then not do it. I'm like person number one. May we stop kidding ourselves. May we be honest with ourselves. And as your mirror shows us what it is that we need to change in our lives as it shows us the, the truth of who Jesus Christ is. May it lead to transformation. Even if it's a small step, that's better than no step at all. Show us that. May we be quick to apply this to our own life this morning and not to someone else in the room. And do that work that you want to do in us that we can be blessed people Individually, as families, as a church family, we can be blessed because we are doers of your words. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.